Welcome to the conversation on TYT, Michael Shore with you today. And we're gonna speak with someone who actually may be a familiar face to some of you for his performances in the Pirates of the Caribbean and 24, which is where I would probably remember him from. Greg Ellis joins us from Los Angeles today. Greg, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me on, Michael. And we are here to talk about things, not that the Pirates of the Caribbean and 24 were frivolous for you, their work and that's how you make your living. But we're here to talk about something more serious. And and it's in it's it's not even just the issue of suicide itself, but it's the issue of suicide as it pertains with great specificity to men in divorce. And we all know, or many of us do know that men are more likely in bigger numbers, I think, and you'll elucidate us on that, in bigger numbers. Uh, than women to commit suicide. I'd love to know, Greg, what brought you to this as an issue, and and maybe if you could share a little of the statistics that we may not know about. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure, Michael. Um, so what brought me to this was being thrust into this dystopian Kafka trap of divorce, the family law system. Overnight, I became homeless and almost destitute, um, having forged quite a successful career. And um, it was all based on hearsay. Um, I had no idea, like many men who were thrown into this system, that um, criminals get uh, the presumption of innocence. And the Western civilization of jurisprudence is upended when it comes to family law and specifically men and fathers. So I started diving into this. I started writing a book and started a video podcast series called The Respondent. Named it The Respondent really because that's what you're tagged as in a legal setting. The other side is a plaintiff or a petitioner. And it's really three root cause areas that I focus on. Suicide, divorce and social isolation. Suicides are skyrocketing right now, 800,000 people die by suicide every year. That's 132 suicides a day, that's one person every 40 seconds. Divorces are escalating, American men kill themselves four times more than women and divorced men. It was staggering when I found out they kill themselves eight times more than women. And for every child who loses their mother to suicide during or after divorce, that's eight children that lose a father. And then if you put the third of the causes in there, social isolation and COVID-19 with the damaging, I think the really disturbingly damaging public health messages that are corroding our collective well-being, like physical distancing and social connectedness is what we should be encouraging people to do. That's vital, but we're not, we're telling people to socially distance. And so families are on life support and they need lifelines. And I think with men in particular, it's hard sometimes to talk about feelings. So I encourage men to open up, destigmatize even the phrase mental health. It's fascinating too. I mean, I I always wonder where the pivot is, right? Where when did it occur to Greg Ellis that yeah things are terrible for me right now? Um, and I'm sure you had many many dark days and and still likely have them in some respects. But where does the pivot happen, or where did it happen for you? Where you take what you know and you decide to share it and you decide to help other people where you feel a well enough to do it, but be sort of giving enough and and almost called to do it. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, I, I talk about curse can be a, when I for me a curse can be your calling and also a blessing. 
Um, I learned so much when this system forced me into this dystopian nightmare. Um, I quested, I pushed back, I, I quested for knowledge and reason and understanding every time the system told me I was this or identified me as that. I refused to believe it, but I, I, I also quested for deeper understanding. So I started to study philosophy and then phenomenology, specifically the phenomenology of feelings and affect theory, and really went into a deep dive on learning. And I guess the night that it changed for me in terms of myself, with the capital S, was when I um, I asked myself the old Socrates question, "Who am I?" You know, uh, know thyself. And it was one night about four or five years ago, and I really got I got got into this dialectic of meaningful question answer, um, thesis synthesis, uh, thesis antithesis synthesis, and I just kept going deeper and deeper, and I got to really know myself more than I'd ever done in my life, and so I started to move forward to this third act, if you will, the third act of my life, which it felt like I'd always gone out there with my career to get. What I, what could I get? What role could I get? What monetary value could I get? What material possession could I get? And then transitioning through to what can I give? How can I be of service? What can I give back? And you know, I may not have the credentials of a psychologist or a phenomenologist. Um, but I certainly have the experiential data of, of having studied this and been through this system for five years. Yeah, and, and when we talk about the, the system you've been through, because that's such a journey, um, it's such a journey for you. But was there a, a point where um, you saw yourself uh, at, at your lowest and you thought about the lowest point that other people were in when they go through something like this? Because it is on paper a routine uh, passage for many people. Divorce, I'm divorced, uh, you're divorced, many people are. Uh, but what is it that was the exception in your case that, that made that happen? I think it was the catastrophic nature of suddenly and shockingly it happened. Um, literally, I, it was in an instant. Um, I was at home playing with my sons who were eight and 10 at the time. Um, and um, a phone call was placed with uh, a wild accusation about me. And I was literally pulled from my home within a few hours in handcuffs and incarcerated. And that was the first of four or five incarcerations. And I think going on that odyssey, if you will, of self-exploration and recovery from that, I found myself a couple of times at the, I call it the brinking point. You know, I literally was living the on the razor's edge of existential terror, and it was, you know. Conversely and paradoxically, when I entered the court system pretty soon in, in what was going on with me, I thought that I was entering the heart of America, the beating heart of America's justice system. I believed in America, I believed in the establishments of law and order and power. And that's when I left America. That's when justice stopped. That's when it got worse. But perversely, that's when I realized that it wasn't just me. There are tens of thousands of men and forsaken fathers who'd been through the same things. And I've read the suicide notes from good men. I'm not talking about the bad men. You know, there are some bad men out there, but the good men who were connected with their fathers, with their sons. And that was heartbreaking to me. And I just knew that I had to do something and find a way creatively to create something that I could give back. 
You know, Stokely Carmichael during the civil rights movement, uh, he was sort of a lion of the civil rights movement at a time. Um, he moved to Africa afterwards, became Kwame Ture, uh, and his teachings uh, were uh, about what happened to him very often in America. Uh, but he talked about not that he left America, that America left him. And when you see in the civil rights movement, that was, he said, a shared experience for many people who were let down by what was written versus what was being practiced. What is the one thing, and I'm sure there are a litany of them, but we don't have a litany of time. The one thing that you could change about the court experience that you experienced for others too. Yeah, well, the the, the first advice I would say is to keep out of, of we keep out of court and you know don't sign with an attorney. I know it sounds perverse to say that, but as much as possible don't. I think the one policy change that I would make is default shared parenting, which is the presumption of innocence of both parties in terms of family law and the parents. And the children should be the focus. And there's only one state that has that, and that's Kentucky. Oddly, and it only has it because the state legislature have it that the attorneys, law firms, and family law practices can't, it's illegal to lobby the state legislature. So they pushed it through there. Everywhere else, it's just, it's a churning practice. It's a nearly $60 billion industry. So, you know, the advice I would give people is to stay out of court if you can mediate. Arbitrate if you can't mediate, um, and um, try and try and work it out before before that um, crisis point hits, and find yeah. a way to find a way to look at self. You know, we so often in this society are reactive, and we focus on the other, whether it be political parties or, or, or partners, interpersonal communication, and. I often say start from an I place and try and be responsible, which after all is the theme of the respondent, less reactivity, more responsibility, be self-reliant. And that's, you know, bringing it back to suicide, that's what the self is. It's sort of really sort of valuing the self and, and learning how to do that as, as an important part. Two, I, these have to be sort of quick answers because we're up against time, but I'm gonna ask them very quickly. Um, where do things stand with you? And then where can people read the respondent and hear more about what you have to say? Yeah, things stand well with me. I'm still leaning into more learning. I'm learning about affect theory right now in terms of the respondent. There are new episodes that come out every two weeks on Sundays at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Um, you can find out about me and the respondent mainly on my website, realgregellis.com. Uh, respondent.com will be launching later in the year or early next year. And that's going to be a hub for men and fathers to come together and talk about emotions and feelings or some of the challenges and pain. I think we are all struggling with something and particularly now in this difficult time. And the inescapability of trauma can sometimes be overwhelming and seemingly insurmountable, but it's not. There are just waves of it and you just have to ride out that wave. And if you are suffering from it, please do ride out the wave. Please do look for the respondent and Greg Ellis's story. It's uh, it's not an easy story, and and we hope that your your sons are well, uh, and we hope you are too. And thanks so much for being on the conversation. This is the Young Turks. 
This is the Young Turks. This is the conversation. I'm Michael Shore, and I'm excited. You know, a lot of people have the conversation. Who would you like to have dinner with most? And for many people, it's presidents and popes and generals. To me, I have to put David Becker on the list because he has the answers to so many questions that aren't really bothering me right now that I would love to know the answers to. David is the director of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, and he joins us today. Where are you, David, today? I'm in the suburbs of Washington DC where CIR is based. Okay, great. And so just outside the Capitol, um, David, you uh, you know, you're like the doctor at the dinner party, I'm sure right now where everybody has an ache and they wanna know how it can be fixed. I, I wanna know a little bit about the question that you are most getting now. And we'll talk a little bit about what the center's doing, but I wanna know what, what it is that people are asking you most now. First of all, there, there are no dinner parties, so I don't get to enjoy that. And second of all, it's a little bit sad that I'm the person you wanna most talk to, but I, I, I appreciate it very much. Um, the question I get most from my friends and colleagues and others is, um, what can I do? They're very worried about American democracy. They're very worried about what's gonna happen in this election season. And people uh, in a very inspiring way really wanna do something that's constructive. And I, I know this is not entirely a satisfactory answer, but the best thing I can tell everyone to do is obviously vote and make a plan to vote. Do it as early as possible. Check your registration now. If you want to vote by mail, if you think that's the right way for you to vote, especially if you're a frequent voter, plan now, get your ballot early and return it early, even return it in person if you can. And honestly, vote in person if you can and you feel comfortable with that, especially early. Because one of the things that I think is gonna be most important is getting as many ballots counted early on election night as possible. And making sure that we don't create a vacuum where people can spread disinformation about the process or make people worry about things being rigged. That process is very normal. It's gonna take some time to count ballots. But among the very first ballots that are counted, the early in-person ballots are counted among the very first in most states. So if you can get out there, make a plan and vote early, you will be doing your part for democracy. And not just because your ballot will be counted early and you'll know it's counted, but because you'll be taking the pressure off of election day for those people who need to vote on election day. So if you can get that done, you'll be doing a huge service to democracy. And that's you know that that's so important, it's such important advice to heed. And I think that for the people that want to make this thing go well, it's, it's easy easily heated. There are people who do want to make it go well, but don't have confidence. And as I've traveled the country as a reporter, it seems to almost the last thing we need is more voter apathy. But I would say the notion that, oh, why bother voting now if they're not even accounted or it's going to be rigged? Why bother doing it? So they've almost added to apathy. And those who are doing it on the Republican side, in this case, I should say, through the administration and through the conversations that have been happening, are, I think, hurting themselves in a way. Am I wrong about that? No, you're exactly right. And I will say it is the goal of the adversaries that America has, our foreign adversaries. Their primary goal is not to elect a particular candidate. That is a secondary goal, sometimes very advantageous to them. But their primary goal is to get citizens of a democracy to lose confidence in that democracy, to lose confidence in the elections and their outcomes. And so if we succumb to apathy, if we succumb to despair, we're actually giving in to what our adversaries want. And now we've got a White House that is actively engaging in, um, in disinformation and, and trying to spread 
a lack of confidence amongst our voters. We've got to fight back against that. And by the way, this is not the entire Republican Party. Um, there are many Republicans, Republican secretaries of state and local election officials who have been working diligently to make elections work well in their states. And we as Americans should be supporting them. We shouldn't be looking to try to divide ourselves across partisan lines. We're gonna need Republicans and Democrats both to make this democracy work. And there are people on the left who are spreading rumors that make us doubt our democracy as well. So this is not just in one party. I'm not trying to spread a false equivalence here. It isn't equivalent, there is definitely a the bully pulpit of the White House and the disinformation they're spreading is particularly damaging. But the best thing we can do is to be confident our fellow citizens are helping make this election work and vote and vote as early as possible. At early as possible is really something that we need to underscore. Let's talk about the center. You gave a little bit of a segue there when you were talking about secretaries of state. The center and the work that you are doing is focused on what precisely? And you just got a big a big grant or a donation and I would say an admonition to do well with it. And now you are doing well with it. Yeah, so I've been working in elections for 22 years. I was a Justice Department attorney in the voting section of the Civil Rights Division in both the Clinton and Bush administrations, second Bush administrations. And I worked at Pew and led their elections team for many years. And I founded the Center for Election Innovation Research, which is a nonprofit and nonpartisan and works to help election officials across the country and across the political spectrum make elections work better for all voters. And we've been working all across the country to help uh, help uh, election officials as they're trying to face the threat of foreign interference, which is very, very real. Um, face the, the, the challenges of voter apathy. And then of course, during the last several months, we have layered the pandemic on top of this. This is gonna be an election like we've never seen before. And when we all get a vaccine and we're able to touch each other and hug each other again, find your local election official and hug them, they need it. They are really struggling, so um, they're facing incredible challenges. But yes, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan gave my organization $50 million uh, to regrant to states to help them educate voters, which is so important right now because what we're seeing is so many changes in this election compared to last elections. Options to vote, where to vote, when to vote, whether to vote by mail or in person, even recruiting a whole new generation of poll workers to replace the older generation of poll workers who might be more at risk. And so we've notified states actually just today about the awards of those grants. We exceeded the amount of grants that were available. Half the states applied for grants, all of them received some money. Almost evenly divided exactly between Republican and Democratic states. And we're very, very pleased that we could assist states in providing mailers and paid media and electronic messaging to voters to help them navigate the process to make this election a success. That's, that's, I mean, a congratulations to you, and and it's also a uh, it's an emergent situation. So when these things happen, uh, and you're able to respond in that way, it's it's so encouraging. The 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 idea that I mean, talk talk us through a couple of things. Naked ballots in Pennsylvania. Um, tell me a little bit about why people are so upset about them, and, and describe it a little bit if you would. So first, we need to understand Pennsylvania as a state has uh, very little history of mail balloting. They used to have excuse required. Only in the last year have they 
they changed that to no excuse required. And they're gonna go from much less than 5% mail balloting to maybe as much as 30, 40 or 50% mail balloting in one election cycle. That is an incredibly challenging thing to do. And what they do in Pennsylvania historically is they provide two envelopes. An envelope that is the outside envelope that has the voters personal information on it that election officials use to validate the ballot, which is very important. It's why mail voting is secure. And then an interior ballot that is just for secrecy. So once they separate the exterior ballot, they still have an interior ballot. Um, that wasn't much of a problem when so few people voted by mail, but now we're expecting um, hundreds of thousands of people to vote by mail in Pennsylvania. And it's gonna be important to educate them about this because a court has ruled that if that interior envelope is not used, um, then the ballot should be rejected. Uh, that's probably too harsh a penalty in this case, but it's the law as it currently stands. We'll see if that continues through the litigation to stand. But voters in Pennsylvania should know you're gonna get two ballot, two envelopes, use both envelopes. That will be the way to ensure that your ballot is counted if you're voting by mail. Is there a hope that we will ever get to a uniform voting system, whether it be by mail or whether it be at the polls? So many people outside of this country who ask me, friends from other countries say, how do you do it this way? There's a rule, 50 different sets of rules for 50 states. It's not just 50, I mean, people always ask me like, what about the election that's coming up? And I have to tell them it's not one election, it's actually more like 10,000 little elections because of right. local jurisdictions that run elections all over the country. Um, so on the one hand, that does make things challenging because we end up having some level of, um, of different standards across the states and localities, different technology that's used. Uh, but on the other hand, it makes us very resilient against attacks. It's really hard to attack um, if you're in Russia, attack an election system that has 10,000 different nodes of contact rather than one single node of contact. So it's a balance constantly. I don't know that we're ever gonna get to a single set of rules for the entire country, but there are a set of best practices that are percolating up. And I think those best practices are being very effectively shared between the states. And of course, my organization and many others are trying to help get to that point. You know, I was gonna ask you to tell us something good. This country feels anxious to me about this election. Not just because I'm lucky enough to go out and into the country, but because you can just stay home and speak to your friends. And there's an anxiety that I've never felt before. But hearing what you just said kind of answered that question for me. I'm gonna ask you another one. Are we aided by the advance we have here? I remember in Bush v. Gore at the end of the of 2000 election, it just, sort of took us all by surprise, we yeah. didn't know what to do. Now we've got this lead time, how important is that? I think it's really important. I, I see in some ways I get a little bit frustrated by the worst case scenarios because I worry a little bit that it's telling voters that their votes might not matter and might not count. And it's really important for voters to know their votes matter and they will count and election officials are gonna ensure that. However. I think we're prepared for most of, or if not all of the worst case scenarios. I think people are gonna find that election day and the days that follow go better maybe than they expected. There are scenarios, maybe not probable, but possible where we know who won the presidency by Wednesday morning. There are scenarios even just a few days later, it's not gonna take weeks, it's not gonna take months. The one thing that we can't plan for is if the margins are so narrow in multiple states, then we're gonna be in trouble, but that's nothing we can plan for. That is just something that might happen if we're that narrowly divided. But I can tell you election officials, whether it's in just the swing states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, or in states where we don't expect to swing, they're ready. I mean, they're as ready as I've ever seen them. And I think we've got this.
All right, well, I like hearing David Becker say that he thinks we've got this. David, thanks for the work you're doing. Thanks for the work also that the Center for Election Innovation and Research is doing there in Washington. We all appreciate it as a nation. This is the conversation you're watching the Young Turks.